Hey everyone, this is Johnny Martinez, pastor of Restoration Church, and welcome to our podcast. We hope this podcast inspires you and encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. We hope you enjoy the sermon. It was 2014, and uh, I was at the new student orientation at Phoenix Seminary, and uh, we had the opportunity that day to meet a lot of the professors. Uh, We had that opportunity uh, that day to get to know some fellow students, and it was uh, a really exciting exciting moment in my life, uh, just getting ready to start seminary. Uh, and so as we got talking, as the, the day got going, uh, they were giving us uh, just kind of an overview of what school was going to look like, the coursework, the requirements, uh, just everything that we had to do for graduation. Uh, then they brought up a little thing called the oral exam. And so that's when things started changing that morning. You see, the oral exam was an exam that you took at the very end of your seminary studies, your very last semester. And this oral exam basically was like this. It was structured like this. Uh, You would go into a room with two of your professors with only your Bible, and your Bible could have no markings at all, like no markings at all. So just you and your Bible and your two professors that are sitting right in front of you would ask you any question that they wanted. And you had to provide a definition of the topic along with a accurate, in context, Bible verse. And they could ask you anything. Uh, Also, uh, if they wanted to, they can just probe a little bit. Okay, he he didn't answer so confidently, so I'm going to continue to ask questions to maybe draw something out of us or challenge us. Now, here's the thing about the oral exam. If you didn't pass your oral exam, you did not graduate, okay? You did not graduate. So after telling us all of these things, they said, oh, by the way, don't worry about it. You're going to be fine. What did we do? We worried about the oral exam. I I know I worried about the oral exam all four and a half years of seminary. And the very last semester of seminary, thank goodness that we actually had a class dedicated to helping you pass the oral exam. So thank goodness for that. And so I remember uh, my professor who was teaching that class, he gave us uh, a sheet of paper with 100 topics on it. And he said, look, you need to know this. This is what you need to know. Make sure there's a definition and a Bible verse. You need to know this. You need to know this to be okay on the oral exam. And if you know this, like if you know these 100 things, then I can assure you, you will be okay. If you know this, you can go confident into your final oral exam and graduate. By the way, I passed the oral exam, thank goodness, all right. And that's the same thing John has been doing this entire letter, hasn't he? This entire letter, if you've been with us the entire time, that's what John has been doing. He's been saying, I need you guys to know this. 
I want you to know this. I want you to know these biblical truths. I want you to know these promises of God. I want you to know these biblical facts so that you can have confidence, so that you can have assurance of your salvation. This has been the argument throughout this letter the entire time. And so assurance of salvation is the major theme in 1 John. Now the question is, why is assurance so important? Why is assurance of salvation so important? I believe it's important, just a few reasons why. Because the, the lack of assurance of salvation produces hesitant followers of Christ. Because lack of assurance produces fearful followers of Christ. The lack of salvation and assurance produces doubting followers of Christ, insecure followers of Christ, stagnant followers of Christ, and complacent followers of Christ. I believe that the lack of assurance also produces evangelistically weak followers of Christ because how can you share the good news of the gospel and give someone else assurance when we ourselves don't have that same assurance. And so it's so important for John, for us and for his audience of the day that he was writing to, to know certain biblical truths in order to have true assurance of salvation. John, throughout his letter, uses the word know 34 times. 34 times in this letter he uses the word know. In today's text alone, he uses it seven times. So John wanted us to know and be certain about certain things. You see, for John, the Christian faith is not a I hope so faith. For John, the Christian faith is not a I think so faith. For John, the Christian faith is not a maybe so faith. For John, the Christian faith is, I know so faith, and I can be certain of who I am in Christ, my position in Jesus. And so as John closes his letter today, and we finish the book of 1 John, he will give us and his audience further assurances or certainties that the true believer possesses that point to their salvation and their security in Christ. And so this morning, my goal is simple, is to answer this question. What are those spiritual assurances that believers now possess? What are those spiritual certainties that we possess that would give us confidence in our spiritual walk and our spiritual life with Christ? So if you have your Bibles, I want to answer that question this morning from the text. 1 John chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 21 as we end, like I said, the letter of 1 John. It says this, I write these, these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked him. If anyone sees his brother committing sin not leading to death, 
he shall ask God, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for First John. We thank you for these 15 weeks that we spent in this letter. God, uh, thank you for the assurance that you've given people. Thank you for the confidence that you've given people. Thank you for uh, just the, the greater faith, the greater certainty of, of them being in you protected and guarded. And so, God, I just pray that you would continue to speak to us this morning through your word and through your spirit. God, we honor you. We thank you. We devote these next few moments uh, to you, actively listening to what you have to say through a fallen preacher, but through your perfect word. We love you. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen and amen. So, again, what are these assurances or certainties that we have as believers. If you're taking notes, the first one is this. We have the assurance of eternal life. The assurance of eternal life. Look at verse 13 with me. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So we have assurance of eternal life. Now, John says, I write these things. Things. And so what are these things? These things are uh, specifically and in context are the things that he said in chapter 5 from verse 1 through verse 12. But in a general sense, uh, it's everything that John has written in his letter to them. And so he is writing to them so that they may know and that so you and I may know that we have eternal life. And remember that John is writing to believers to encourage them and to assure them that they have eternal life. And not, not that they have eternal life as well, but that you can truly know that you have eternal life. It is possible for John and for us to know that we actually know God. It is possible to know for sure that God knows us as well. The believer is the believer's certainty, yours and I's certainty, is not based off of feelings. Well, I feel like I'm in Christ today, and I, this day I feel like I'm not in Christ. And so feelings change every single day, all day, don't they? But the believer's certainty is not based off of feelings, but of spiritual facts, concrete things that actually happen, biblical promises uh, that we can, um, biblical evidences that we can point to. So for example, John through this letter has given us both external and internal facts or biblical truths that point to our evidence that we are truly in Christ. 
Let me just name a few external things. Uh, we have to believe in the right Jesus, right? If, if you you got to believe in the right Jesus. If you don't believe in the sound biblical Jesus, there's no life in you. You are not in Christ. You have to love the brethren. You have to love the brethren. You have to love the people of God. If there is no love in you for the people of God, the, lo the love of God is not in you. We have to obey his commandments. We have to confess sin. And so all of these external things point to the fact if we're truly in Christ or not. Then John also gives us some internal evidence or internal facts, right? And he says that the Holy Spirit is within us, right? Testifying that we are truly children of God. The Holy Spirit in the life of a believer testifies and gives evidence and reveals that you and I if we're truly born again, we are truly in Christ, and we have assurance of eternal life. Anyone thankful for the assurance of eternal life, that you don't have to doubt, that you don't have to worry about the life in the future, but that you have eternal life now. And here's the thing about eternal life, church. When we think about eternal life, a lot of us think about heaven, don't we? Like we just think eternal life is kind of synonymous with heaven. And, and that's kind of the, the Christian culture. But later on, we're going to see in, in uh, verse 20 of this passage that Jesus is eternal life. John says this about Jesus. He is the true God and eternal life. So Jesus is the eternal life. We have assurance that we have eternal life, Jesus, that we have Jesus, because you see, here's the thing. Heaven is not heaven without Christ. You see, we all want to go to heaven, right? But here's the thing. Do we all want Jesus? Because if Jesus weren't there, it ain't heaven. Jesus is the goal. Jesus is the gift. And so we're assured, believer, and today just be assured that if you give external evidences, internal evidences, of your life, that you have been born again with the power of God, and you can be sure that you have eternal life. Rest in that. Rest in the promises of God. The second assurance that we have, according to John, is this. We have the assurance of answered prayer. Answered prayer. Look at verse 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So here we have assurance of answered prayer. Now, we're going to go into verse 16 and 17. It's all connected, and I'm going to split this point up in two. Because here in verse 14 and 15, John makes a statement about prayer, and then he's going to give us an example about prayer in verse 16 and 17. But I first want us to look at verse 14 and 15. He just makes a statement about prayer or a claim about prayer, but he says that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So believer, if you are truly in Christ, you can rest assured that when you pray and that when you call out to God, he hears you with the intent of answering your prayer. You can be confident that he hears you. And isn't that great comfort? That when we call out to our heavenly father, we know he hears us every single time. Whatever request, whatever need, he hears 
us. But we must pray according to his will. To pray according to God's will means to pray according to God's word since God's word, right, is God's revealed will for our lives. So if you want to pray according to God's will for your life and you want to know his will for your life, you must be in his word because that's how God has revealed his will to us, through his word. Look what he Look what John also says. He says that we can be assured that he hears us. And again, that's great comfort for you and I. But he also says that we know, right? We know, we can be certain that he, has, that he, has, uh, that he will answer our request. We know that we are going to get an answer from God every single time. When a believer prays according to God's will, the believer can rest assured that God not, has not only heard their prayers, and your prayers, but that he answers them as well. Now, you might be thinking, hold on a second, Johnny. I've prayed for a lot of things, and it hasn't happened. I pray for so many things, and they have not come to pass. What's up with that? Well, let me put it this way. We must understand this verse and verses like these in light of what the entire Bible says. That's where I think we see the beauty of systematic theology. Systematic theology is a simple, it's a simple thing to understand. Systematic theology essentially says, what does the entire Bible collectively say about a certain topic? What does the entire Bible, not just this verse, say about this one topic so that we can get a robust understanding of the doctrine of prayer? So here's what we need to know about prayer. We, again, we need to look at it and understand it uh, in light of other verses in the Bible. So for example, when we pray according to Matthew 21, verse 22, uh, we have to pray in faith. Jesus says, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So we have to pray with faith, right? Uh, we also have to pray persistently. In Luke chapter 18, uh, there's a story of a, a widow who was suffering injustice, and she goes to a judge, and she keeps going and going. She's just, uh, she's just persistent. Uh, this is what it says. Uh, For a while, he refused. The judge refused to give her justice. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, she keeps persistent, she's persistent, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And so there is this was a, an illustration of being persistent in prayer, not just praying once, but being persistent in our prayer. Also, God's answered prayers for us also depends if we, if we live obediently. If we, the, the way that we live also matters if God answers our prayers or not. If you remember in 1 John chapter 3, we covered this a few weeks ago. It says this, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we, re we receive from him. Why? Because we keep his commandments and do what he pleases. When we obey God and please him. And lastly, I'll just give you another example of understanding prayer in a little more robust way. We have to pray submissively. 
We have to pray submissively. If you remember Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke chapter 22, he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Remove this wrath. Remove this punishment. But then he says, nevertheless, not I will, but yours be done. I submit to your will, God. And so we, we need to understand prayer in light of all of, all of that. And so if God doesn't answer our prayers, if we pray and God doesn't answer our prayers, we need to know that God screens our prayer requests through the filter of his love. Let me say that again. God screens our prayers through the filter of his love. Many times we ask for something that really isn't good for us. Maybe sometimes we ask for something that isn't the best for us. And so when God says no, or when God doesn't answer a prayer, it's still an answered prayer. He always answers prayers. And we will know that when he says no or not yet, God will give us something better. Because he's a good father and he knows what's best. But notice I didn't say that God will give us something easier. Easy and better, they're different. Sometimes we need to go through hard times to see the better things that God has for us. But he will give us something better. Parents, let me ask you this. Do you give your kids everything they ask for? If you do, I wish I was your kid, because <laughs> that'd be awesome, right? Parents, if, if your kid asks you at, uh, right before bedtime, Dad, Mom, can I eat this whole bag of candy, would you give them the bag of candy? No, you wouldn't, because they will not sleep. They will be on a sugar rush. They won't allow you to sleep, and they'll wake up in the morning super cranky. Grandparents, if your grandkids ask you if they could eat the bag of candy, what will you say? Yes, of course, you can eat two or three. Go ahead, it doesn't matter. I'll take you back home to your parents, all right. I want to address something else in this passage. I want to address the prosperity gospel here. This verse does not teach that God is obligated to give us whatever we want and whatever we ask for, nor do other verses of the Bible. This verse does not teach that God must answer our prayers. This, mean, this, this verse is not talking about if I want to be healthy and wealthy, God must answer our prayers. You see, we're not to demand what we want. We're not to decree what we want. We're not to declare what we want. We are to ask God for the things that we want. You see, God is not to be treated like a vending machine where we give him our currency through prayer and he dispenses his blessing. The prosperity gospel treats God very transactional. If I do this, then I should get that. But it's a relationship with our heavenly Father who loves us and who wants what's best for us. So prayer, let me remind you, believer, is not getting things from God. It's getting God himself. Prayer is not getting things from God. It is getting God himself. And believer, God is waiting to hear from you. God delights when you ask him. Parents, don't you delight when your child 
ask you for something they need, absolutely, you will provide in an instant. God delights when you ask. And many times, God actually delights more in us asking than us asking God. So ask. Have that assurance that God hears you and that God answers your prayer. And so John, what he does now is he gives us an example of this in verse 16 and 17. And honestly, these next two verses are actually a little hard to translate, if I could just be honest with you. Uh, But I kind of landed on an interpretation, and I'll explain it in just, just a minute. But it says this in verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So, John writes that if a believer uh, is, is, um, knows of, of or sees their brother and sister in Christ committing a sin that does not lead to death, that person, that believer, is to pray for them. If you and I see a brother or sister in Christ wandering, we are to pray for them. And let me remind you that one of the major themes, not I don't think it's the major, but one of, the, one of them, like the sub-themes of John is loving each other, loving the believers. And so one of the ways that we love each other and show this evidence that we are in Christ is by the way that we pray for a backlighting believer. You see, true believers must never rejoice when others stumble or go astray. In 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love passage, in verse 6, it says, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. We don't rejoice and we're not glad when our brother and sister in Christ start wandering from the faith start living a life apart from Christ, or living uh, in sin. We don't rejoice in that. It should hurt us. It should break our hearts for that. It should grieve us. And when a brother or sister sins, we are not to talk to people about them. Instead, we are to talk to God about them, that God would restore them, that God would draw them back to to himself and to walk in the light and walk in the truth. So that's what John is saying here in verse 16. Then he says about the sin not leading to death. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin that does not lead to death. So what is the sin that does not lead to death? That's the question. What is John talking about here? I believe in this context, the sin that does not lead to death is any sin that a true believer, true believer, true born-again believer commits. The reason why is that it doesn't lead to death is because that person is, again, a true believer, true born-again believer that has an advocate with the Father in heaven. We talked about that in 1 John chapter 2, didn't we? That true born-again believers have Jesus advocating for us in heaven. And so if this true believer is saved, again, they have an advocate with Jesus. And not only that, but in 1 John chapter 5, verse 18, which we'll get to, 
The true believer, again, is protected by Christ from falling away. So they're never going to be, if they're truly born again, they will never experience spiritual death because they're kept, preserved by God. But again, if they're truly born again. Now, if they're truly born again and they're in a season of sin, it may, it may not lead to spiritual and eternal death, but it may, and honestly, sometimes I hope that it may lead to discipline. I think discipline is one of the ways that God draws his children back to himself, preserves them and keeps them and protects them. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 says, God disciplines those he loves. Pray for discipline. Discipline, but not death. And so when you're praying for your brother and sister in Christ and they're, they've just wandered, pray that God would restore them. And if necessary, if necessary, that God may discipline him or her. Now, that's the sin that, not, that doesn't lead to death if you're truly born again. Now, the sin that leads to death, what is that? I want you to notice something in verses 16 and 17. When he talks about the sin that leads that does not lead to death, he says brother. But when he talks about the sin that leads to death, he doesn't say brother. That's very specific. So now John is not talking about a believer. He's talking about someone who doesn't know Christ. So what is the sin that leads to death? Well, I think the sin or sins that lead to death are the things that John has been talking about this entire, entire letter. He's been talking about sins of an unrepentant and habitual lifestyle of sin that leads to death. Not confessing sin, enjoying sin, delighting in sin, no repentance, just a habitual, unrepentant lifestyle of sin. I think it's the lack of love for others. The lack of caring for people and being concerned for people. A belief in a false Jesus, not the true Christ, true man, and true God. It is departure from Christian community and abandoning Christian community. It's the stubborn refusal to accept the true message of the gospel. It's also an attempt to cause other others to wander from the faith. Because if you remember, there was a group within John's community that was trying to get people to also wander from the faith. And so it's all of these things that John has been writing about. All of these sins lead to death. And here's the thing. We must have all of these in the positive sense. We must confess our sin and not live a lifestyle of sin. We must love others. We must believe in the true Jesus to know that we are truly saved. But that's the sin that leads to death. And notice what John says. He says, I do not say that one should pray for that. So John doesn't say to pray for those committing the sins that lead to death, but he also doesn't say that we shouldn't. So John, interesting love, interesting enough, he just leaves the door open. I'm not saying we should, and I'm not saying we shouldn't. It may do good. It may not do good. Isn't that interesting that he leaves it up to us? You see, because there are times in the Bible 
where people stopped praying and people stopped uh, uh, trying to share the gospel with others. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 16, it says this, As for you, do not pray for this people. Do not pray. Uh, the Lord's telling Jeremiah, do not pray for them anymore. Don't pray. Or lift up a cry or prayer for them. And do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. There's a point in time where the Lord's like, Jeremiah, don't stop praying for them. It ain't going to work. It's, it's just move on. Remember Jesus and his disciples in verse 10? He says, and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Just keep on moving. You know, just, just share the gospel in, in, in different soil, in fertile soil. Now, when, how do we determine when we should stop praying or when we should not pray? Or pray? It's a case-by-case situation. That's got to give you the guidance and wisdom to continue to pray, to not pray, to stop praying. It's a, let, let God guide you there. Next, we have the assurance of victory over sin. We have the assurance of a victory over sin. Look at verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, does not keep on sinning, a lifestyle of sin, practicing sin. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So an assurance that we have is that we have victory over sin. So John here, though, is not speaking about a believer's perfection but about a believer's purity. John is not speaking about a believer's perfection of life, but the believer's direction of life. Is the believer practicing sin or not, habitual, unrepentant sin or not? And the answer is no, because the believer has been born of God and does not delight and practice sin. We have victory over sin. And why do we have victory over sin? Believer, do you know that you have everything that you need to conquer sin in your life? Believer, do you know that you have everything at your disposal to pursue a life of godliness and purity and holiness and righteousness? 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things. Say all things with me. All things. We just got charismatic for a second there. All things that pertain to life and what? Godliness. You have all things to pertain to life and godliness. We have everything we need. God has given us everything we need, all the means of grace to pursue godliness. Just for example, prayer, community, meditation, his word, his spirit, and even church discipline. You don't talk about that anymore. He's giving us these means of grace to pursue godliness, to conquer sin in our lives. And John says that he was born of God protects him. The he here is Jesus, that Jesus protects the one who has been born of God. So because believers are kept safe and are protected by Christ, they do not persist in sin. Jesus preserves. Jesus protects the believer, and we have that assurance in our life. 
One example that I think about pretty often is uh, this, the example where um, uh, Jesus tells Peter this in Luke twenty-two thirty-two. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So Jesus prays for Peter, preserves Peter, that his faith may not fail. And so we have assurance that we will not fail. We have assurance that we have victory over sin. And we have assurance that the evil one will not touch us. Believer, the evil one will test you. The evil one will tempt you. The evil one will try to touch you. This idea of to touch means laying a hold of or grasping in order to harm. He wants to try to harm you. But can I just remind you today that spiritually speaking, eternally speaking, the evil one could test you, he could tempt you, but he could never touch your spiritual life, and he could never take your spiritual life because you are guarded and protected and preserved in Christ. Be assured of that. Next, assurance of belonging to God. Look at verse 19. We have the assurance of belonging to God. John says, we know, we know, again, we, we have certainty that we are from God. Some translations like the NLT says children of God. We know that we are children of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know, you know, believer, right now, if you're truly in Christ, you know that you are a child of God. Rest in that. Be assured in that. Find security in that. That at one point you were an orphan with no family and no father. And God loved you so much that he adopted you into his family. That, that at one point you were under the power of sin, Satan, and death. But, but God rescued you and protected you. And now you are under the protection of a loving and caring father. You have a new family. You have a new father. And so John, if you remember earlier in this letter, he says there's only two types of, family in this, types of families in this world. You're either a child of God or you're a child of the devil. That's what the text says. And if you are truly born again, if you're truly regenerated, you can rest assured that you belong to God that you are under the protection of God and not under the power of the devil. Do you remember in 2001 when Steve Jobs introduced the, uh, the iPod? Do you remember that? When he introduced the iPod, he takes the iPod, right? And he says, a thousand songs in your pocket. Like a thousand songs in your pocket. Well, that's pretty cool, man. That's pretty awesome. The enemy holds the entire world in his pocket. He's powerful. He's powerful. The enemy holds the entire world in his pocket, but Christ upholds the entire universe by the word of his power. Christ is superior. Christ is more powerful than the enemy. 
He's powerful enough to birth us into a new family and to protect us, to sustain us, and to give us victory for those who are children of God. And lastly, assurance of the truth of Jesus. Assurance of the truth of Jesus. Look at verse 20. And we know, again, no, 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 right? That the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. We can be assured that we know the true Jesus. Grace has been given to us so that we can understand who Jesus really is, so that we can know the true Christ, not the false Christ. Grace has been given to us to understand, receive, and apply biblical truth. Jesus has given that to us. It's a grace. We didn't earn it. We didn't earn our understanding or our knowledge of Christ. We didn't earn it. It was grace. It was given to us. It wasn't because we were super smart that we're like, okay, I, in my own power, this is the real Christ. I place my faith in him. It wasn't because we were so knowledgeable of the scriptures that we knew the true Christ. It wasn't anything in us. Let me remind you of your state and my state before salvation, before we were given the grace to understand. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 4 through 6. This is you and I before God just lovingly birthed us into a new family. He says, Paul says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We were blinded. We couldn't see. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves, as your servants for Jesus' sake, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We were blind. We couldn't see. We couldn't understand. The enemy had us under his power, but God graciously gave us understanding, gave us light, illuminated us so that we can see Jesus for who he really is. Another example, Luke chapter 10, verse 22, Jesus says, All things have been handed over to, to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. It was revealed to us. We simply received it. We didn't earn it. We weren't super wise. We weren't super smart. It was revealed to us by God's sovereign grace. And that's why we cannot boast in anything that we've done, but everything that he's done for us. So we have assurance of the truth of Christ, and the Spirit reveals that to us, points to the real Christ. Whenever we hear false teaching, he points to the real Jesus. 
And look how John ends his letter. Isn't this interesting? Look at verse 21. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. It just seems so odd. It just seems like that doesn't belong there, right? Hey, keep yourselves from idols. Now, what is he talking about here? Well, I don't think he really has in mind like pagan worship and things like that. And first of all, idolatry is anything or anyone that we love more than Christ. It's basic form. Idolatry is anyone or anything that we love more than Christ. That is idolatry. And so John says, flee from idolatry. Keep yourselves from idols. So what is he talking about? I think what he's talking about here are the things that uh, his opponents were believing in doing. They worshipped a false Jesus. Remember we, remember we talked about the different views of Jesus that these false teachers had. They had a false view of Christ. They worshipped a false Christ. And if they worshipped a false Christ, that means they also believed in and, and had a false gospel. They were put, putting a false gospel before the true gospel. And the reason they believed these heresies and false teaching was because they were dependent on human wisdom to make sense out of who Jesus was. And we put, when we put human wisdom before biblical revelation, it is idolatry. And so John is saying, keep away from this human wisdom, from the false gospel, from the false Christ. John Calvin famously says that the human heart is an idol factory. We produce idols, don't we, nonstop, things that we love and cherish over God himself. But John says, keep yourselves away from false teaching, false gospels. Don't rely on human wisdom. So to come to an end, what are we to do then based off this text? What are we to do? What are some of the next steps that we have in our life based off this text? What are some of the assurances that you and I have that, um, that are going to help us practically live our life? Well, it depends. It depends your next step and how you go about this. It depends on whether you are in Christ or not. If you are not in Christ, if you would consider yourself not a Christian, if you would consider yourself someone who hasn't submitted to the lordship of Christ, acknowledged him as your perfect Lord and Savior, can I just tell you to believe in Christ? Come to Christ so that you can have the assurances that I just talked about. Because if you are not in Christ, you still have assurances, but not the assurances I just mentioned. For those who are not in Christ, you have an assurance that you don't have eternal life. For those who are not in Christ, you have an assurance that your prayers will not be answered by God. God only answers one prayer of the unbeliever, and that's the prayer of repentance. If you're not in Christ, you can be assured that you don't have victory over sin. 
but that you are still blinded by the power of Satan. You can't be sure that you don't belong to God, but to the devil. You can be sure that you don't understand or have a knowledge of the true Jesus. Every single person, believer or non-believer, has an assurance. Now that's the bad news. But the good news is that you can have these assurances. The good news is that if you believe in Christ, you will have life. John, in his gospel, wrote his gospel so that we would believe. In his letter, he wrote so that we may know that we're in him. I want to read to you John's key verse for his gospel. In John 20, verse 31, he says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the good news. Placing your faith in Christ. Repenting of sin, turning away from your former life, acknowledging Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you will have life, a.k.a. Jesus. He is eternal life, and you can be sure of that. Now, what about those of you that are believers? What does it mean to you? What does it mean to us? Do we stop believing once we're saved? No, we don't. We continue to believe. We believe when we first come to Christ, and we believe our entire life. The gospel is not just for those who don't know Christ. We still need the gospel. We still need the grace of God in our lives every single day. So believer, I just want to encourage you this morning to believe in God's promises about what we can know. Believe the facts of what we can know. Believe biblical truth. Take God at his word, at what we can truly know. You see, you can know that you know God, according to 1 John. You can know that you are in God. You can know that you will be like Jesus. You, you can know that Jesus came to take away your sins. And by the way, these are all in First John. You can know, believer, that you have passed from death to life. You can know that God abides in you. You can know that you have eternal life. You can know that God answers prayer. You can know that you belong to God. And you can know that you know Jesus who is true and the eternal life. And when you and I know these things and have, have certainty about these things, it produces assurance in our life. So believe the promises of God. Know the things of God. 
embrace them, take them to heart. Not only so that you and I could have assurance, because this world is much bigger than us. We know these things, yes, for ourselves to have assurance, but we also know these things and believe these things and live them out so that others could have the same assurance that we have. We don't keep these things to ourselves. We don't have assurance and say, well, I'm okay, I'm sure, I don't know about the rest of the world. Because we are assured and secure, we should be the most boldly proclaiming God's word to a dark and dark world. Because we're so secure. Sharing the gospel boldly. Sharing the good news of Jesus. Giving others assurance. Don't keep that assurance to yourself. Proclaim it. Proclaim it from the rooftop so that all will hear and know that Jesus is the Son of God. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for your word. Thank you that we can know so many facts and biblical truths that are not simply just intended to fill our head with knowledge and information, but these truths transform our heart with a greater assurance that we are in you, Jesus. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning who struggle with assurance of salvation. May you validate, confirm, encourage them that they are truly in you. May you give them rest and peace and restore their joy, remove anxiety or fear of the future because we know that you protect us and preserve us. And God, I pray for believers who profess to know you and really don't know you. Who, will, who are on their way to having an encounter with you saying, Jesus, but I did all of these things, and you will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. I pray that you would open their eyes to the reality of their spiritual situation. That it's one thing to profess Christ. It's another thing to possess Christ they would possess you truly. They would be truly born again and give them assurance as well. God, we thank you for this entire series, everything you've done, the lives you've changed. May we continue to live boldly for you, giving assurance to others with the message of the gospel. We love you. We thank you.
your mighty name we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to those who give generously to this ministry. Without you, this ministry would not be possible. If you feel led to give, please use the link below as we seek to make a difference in people's lives. Also, please make sure to share this with your family and your friends. Again, thank you so much for listening.